Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm not at Broadcast Central yet. We're on our way to Chattanooga. We have just finished 12 days, 12 different locations, where I've had the privilege and opportunity to teach Bible prophecy. We have been on the radio rallies for a network that carries us, VCY America. And we've been into Wisconsin, up into Michigan, over to South Dakota, down into Kansas, and now on our way back home to broadcast headquarters there in Chattanooga. Twelve days on the road. You can guess this broadcast guy is a little bit tired, but our broadcast partners will come to the broadcast table with us in order to help us get through the broadcast. Ken Timmerman is standing by as we come to others. We'll talk with David Dolan, the Middle East News Update. Winky Madad is going to be talking about the first member of the royal family of the British Empire, Prince William, who will visit Israel on its 70th birthday. John Rood has a European Union update. Peter Fry, he is the expert on the EMPs. We're going to talk to him about a monster bomb uh, that Russia has just developed. Could be a threat to the east coast of the United States. And then David James and I will talk about the Noahide pledge by a group of what were people who called themselves Christians now have denied Jesus Christ and they have become connected to the Jewish state of Israel. Well, all of those conversations ahead, thank you so very much for giving us 90 minutes. If you'll do that, we'll be able to get the information to you. Let's go right now to the European continent into France, where we're going to find Ken Timmerman. And Ken, let me talk about, I think maybe in your region of the world and covering geopolitical activities, this may be the top story. Turkey's Tayyip Erdogan, who is now the president, is obsessed with holy war against other nations, and he's facing a major election on Sunday. He wants all the power that he can get. He wants to do away with the prime minister's position. He wants to set up and revive that Ottoman Empire, have a caliphate, and he become the caliph. Talk to me about the obsession that Erdogan has with holy war and the upcoming elections. Well, this is something that we have talked about a lot on this broadcast, but that most American media do not like to mention. The Europeans don't like to mention it at all. Erdogan sees himself as the caliph of the Muslim, a newly created Muslim empire. He constantly talks about jihad to Turkish audiences in electoral rallies. He constantly talks about attacking Israel in these electoral rallies, and he constantly talks, most recently, about Austria's decision to expel a handful of Turkish clerics, radical clerics, from Austria and to shut down a handful of radical mosques. And Erdogan says this is going to ignite a new war between the cross and the crescent. This is the type of rhetoric that Erdogan uses on a daily basis. We don't listen to it. I am so glad, Jimmy, that you talk about it on this show. I think it's tremendously important. I think it's tremendously important that our listeners hear this, because in Turkey, Everybody knows this. This is common knowledge in Turkey. It's common knowledge to anyone who actually follows Turkish affairs. But in the so-called mainstream media, which is politically corrected to ignore this kind of threat, 
no one is talking about Erdogan's persecution of Christians. No one's talking about his threats to Israel. No one's talking about his threats to the United States. What about the fact, do you think he is going to be able to be successful in his political fight for his political life and be elected president once again and get that power he needs to continue his agenda? Well, I, I think he will. But again, I'm, I'm not an expert on internal Turkish politics. We discussed this last week. He has a challenger in the election. It's the first round. They have a two-round election system. If one candidate does not get 50% in the first round, Erdogan might not get that 50%. I think he probably will. But if he doesn't, he's clearly going to win in the second round. I don't see any real challenge to him in his presidency at this point. Often when I talk with you, Ken, we focus on Iran. May I ask you this? Is Iran's multi-front war against Israel already basically underway? Well, it is. And you and I have discussed this many times. It's been underway for many years. But it constantly takes new twists that we don't predict. So in the past uh, two weeks from Gaza, with Iranian support, you have Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad launching the kite jihad against Israel. So they're launching these incendiary kites over the border to firebomb, essentially firebomb Israeli towns and especially the forests and crops. And they've set, you know, hundreds of fires inside Israel. There have been thousands, tens of thousands of acres, actually, that have been set on fire by these incendiary kites. It's an act of war. The United States has not yet recognized it, and don't hold your breath for the United Nations to recognize it. But this is an act of war by Iranian proxies in Gaza against the state of Israel, and and we ought to recognize it for what it is. Let me continue along the line focusing on Iran. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, made a Middle East visit this week. She went over to meet with King Abdullah of Jordan, and one of her conversation points was uh, the activities, the aggressive activities of Iran, and how could they counter that? Yeah, more hypocrite than Angela Merkel you only get with, I think, Senator Chris Van Hollen in Maryland, my home state. You know, these are crocodile tears. Merkel has been really working very, very hard against the United States and the efforts of President Trump to get out of the bad Iran deal that was negotiated by Obama and John Kerry, which allowed the Iranian regime to develop nuclear weapons in secret, and now this latest trip into Jordan to convince Prince Abdullah that she's going to take a tough line on Iran. She's not. All Angela Merkel wants, she wants two things. Number one, she's facing a challenge at home within her own ruling coalition from the Christian Democrats who say that she's been too soft on Muslim immigration into Germany. And I happen to believe that that's true. She's allowed over 2 million Muslim immigrants over the past three years. And it's submerging Germany. They can't deal with it. They're going into Sweden as well. And then she's also trying to convince hardliners in her own party that she's going to be tough on Iran, even though she's trying to work with Macron, the president of France, and Theresa May in Britain to maintain some semblance of this failed Iran deal that the U.S. has pulled out of so they can continue 
to do business. And that's what this is all about, Jimmy. They want to do business. The Germans want to do business with Iran. The French want to do business with Iran. The Brits want to do business with Iran, regardless of what President Trump declares about the Iranian nuclear weapons program and the U.S. absolute intent to shut it down. The old adage that politics makes strange bedfellows is in play right there. Well, Jordan, King Abdullah, much concerned about what's going on in southwestern part of Syria. That's right there at the Jordanian border with the Israeli border. The Syrian army stepping up attacks there in that location. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how those attacks develop. Syria would like to get rid of the ISIS positions along the Golan Heights and the Israeli border. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the the Syrian government is attacking with its Iranian proxies and its Hezbollah proxies from Lebanon, who we've just learned this week are now wearing Syrian army uniforms. Israel definitely does not want to have Hezbollah or the Iranian Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guards Quds Force, on its borders. And I suspect that this clearing action by the Syrian government is not going to be the end of affairs. We're going to see an Israeli counterstrike against the Iranians and Hezbollah inside Syria as a response to this. Ken, a question about uh, the aftermath of the summit there in Singapore between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. U.S. intelligence now telling us that North Korea will sell nuclear technology to Iran. What do you know about that? I believe, and I think there's a tremendous body of evidence to support my belief, that the Iranian nuclear program and the North Korean nuclear program are one. That the Iranian missile program and the North Korean missile program are one. The North Koreans have advanced their programs with Iranian money. Iranians have always been there for every test of a North Korean missile, every test of a North Korean nuclear warhead. So to say today, all of a sudden, that North Korea is going to sell as a kind of Hail Mary pass to Iran, it's going to sell their nuclear technology or their long-range ballistic missile technology, I think is ridiculous. This has been going on for 20 years. If anything, I suspect that as a result of President Trump's overture and his meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, that this kind of exchange is going to stop, because that's what the United States is demanding of Kim Jong-un. So when I read these reports by these so-called experts where they have so-called leaks for the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community and people outside it, like myself, but who are monitoring these events for many, many years, have seen Iranian-North Korean nuclear and missile cooperation going on like lips and teeth. They are as close as lips and teeth. If anything is going to happen today, it's going to stop, not to continue. And that's thanks, again, to President Trump. You know, that's why, dear friends, we have Ken Timmerman as our broadcast partner. I could not have a better broadcast partner than Ken Timmerman, who's on top of geopolitical activities around the world and vast experience. 20 years he's been studying the last issue that we talked with him about. You cannot beat that type of a broadcast partner. Ken, thank you so very much. appreciate your knowledge and your being with us each and every week. Jimmy, it's always a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I've got David Dolan. He's standing by for his Middle East News update. We'll have him to these microphones in a moment right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today. 
The book of Revelation is God's final word to man, and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're going to be talking with David Dolan in a moment right here on the weekend edition of Prophecy Today. I'm in temporary studios, as I have already mentioned, here in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. We're on our way back home after a 12-day tour, 12 different locations, traveling in between, speaking every night. So if the old voice sounds a bit tired, you can understand why. We're going our way home to Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Pray as we travel. I've got to tell you, we had a great, great time, as I just mentioned a moment ago, in this tour with VCY America. But now let's get to David Dolan with his Middle East News Update. You need to be on top of what's happening in this region of the world. It is key to understanding how the end-time scenario for Bible prophecy is being played out. I would imagine maybe the number one headline in Israel would be the meeting between Prime Minister Netanyahu and King Abdullah, who got together for a visit this week. I mean, uh, they're Israelis and there are Jordanians. They are Arabs and Jews. Why was this such an important meeting for these two Middle Eastern leaders. The reason that they met, Jimmy, is the Syrian offensive that's growing right along 
the joint Israel-Jordanian border. This is in Dira province in the southwest of Syria. It's a rather small province, or we would say state, in the United States. And the U.N. says that thousands have already fled their homes due to Syrian shelling right along the border. Individual reports, not U.N., say that's up to 20,000 people. And the U.S. has been warning that this is the de-escalation zone that President Trump set up with Vladimir Putin, where there was supposed to be very limited military action, being that it's right next to Israel and Jordan. And uh, the U.S. issued a statement warning that they would, quote, take firm and appropriate measures in response to any violations of that agreement. So it is being violated. These forces are gathering there. I've been talking about that for a few weeks. The Israelis have been warning that they wouldn't stand for military action right along their border in Kinetra and these other places that Syria is determined, apparently, to take back with Iranian help. And uh, the fighting is escalating, Jimmy, and this concerns King Abdullah very much because the people that are fleeing are not fleeing into the Golan Heights, of course. They're going into Jordan. He's getting more refugees. That's the last thing he needs. And, of course, there's a fear that they'll pinch and keep going into Jordan. There is reports in the Middle East that this is the ultimate plan that Syria, Russia, and Iran and the others with them will carry on after they take Dura province and carry on into Jordan and uh, try to overthrow King Abdullah. So it's a very serious situation, and the two leaders, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting, but they have some serious issues to discuss for sure. Yeah, I would have liked to have been a fly right beside you there, having uh, the opportunity to watch that eastern border of Israel, the longest border that the state of Israel has with any Arab nation, a key location for possibly entering the Jewish state, but this meeting, I'm sure, very, very important. Well, this is not a headline, uh, but it has been talked about for a long time. In fact, the article that I read said it was the worst-kept secret. That was that Israel has nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Now, I don't know that that's been defined by the Israeli government I think it was Perez. Did you tell me it was Shimon Perez who alluded to that? And what about the fact? Do you do believe that Israel does have nuclear weapons of mass destruction? Oh, I'm certain of it, Jimmy. I, you know, I worked over there for 33 years in journalism and uh, with CBS for about a third of that time. And we had access to quite a few sources and talked to a lot of people. But no, it was uh, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, the Likud Prime Minister, who in a German interview uh, with Der Spiegel magazine a few years ago, he stated that Israel has over 200 nuclear weapons. He stated that. Now, of course, he was the prime minister, so he would know exactly the situation there. So that's uh, how it came out to be confirmed, as it were, although, again, he was a civilian. He was out of office, but uh, obviously prime minister for uh, three or four years. So they have them. They don't want to use them. They make clear all the time that they won't be. This is a statement they always use, Jimmy. It's a cat statement. They always say it. We will not be the first to introduce weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East, meaning we will not be the first to use them. They won't come out of the blue from us, and then you may respond the way you will. But 
if they go on to say we are hit by such weapons, we will respond. Sometimes they say seven times over, sometimes ten times over. Uh, I remember when uh, Lieberman said we would wipe out Damascus. That was actually years ago. This isn't the current situation. That was in 96 when Netanyahu opened the tunnel near the Western Wall and there was rioting everywhere and it was happening in Syria and Syria was threatening to hit Israel militarily and he said we will wipe out Damascus. Well, recently, as you noted, they've said we can take the regime completely out. So they're saying we have them. They don't want to use them. They dread using them, but they will use them if they feel it's the only way they can survive. The Israeli nation is not going to go down in any way without a massive fight, and its uh, neighbors, friends, and foes need to realize that. Yes, absolutely. It's a great deterrent for the enemies making some false, crazy move and coming into Israel trying to wipe them out. Well, another issue, I want to talk about the Gaza Strip operation in a moment, but the WAQF, W-A-Q-F, which is the Islamic Trust who has control over the Temple Mount, it was during Ramadan, it looks like the report says, some priceless Temple-era Artifacts and remains from that period of time 2,000 years ago were actually taken off the Temple Mount, taken to a secret location and destroyed, not going to be able to be a part of the restoration project of the archaeologist Gabby Barkai. This is just simply a move by the Palestinians, would you not say, David, to deny that Israel ever had a presence on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's exactly what it is, Jimmy, but it just breaks my heart uh, every time I think about it because I covered that story over and over and over again because this is not the first time this has happened, as you well know. Uh, I interviewed Gabby Barkai and many other archaeologists working on this situation, and can you imagine them so excited to have these ancient artifacts discovered? And, and you know, uh, Barkai said to me one time in a television interview I was doing with him, he said, we don't care if it's a Jewish artifact or a Muslim artifact or an Ottoman artifact or a Christian artifact, Byzantine or whatever it is. We are excited to find these ancient things and to display them and to to show them to the world, to understand the ancient world better, and especially, of course, thrilled to find ancient manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which an Arab kid found, but, you know, uh, that, that whole story. So to see these things taken and deliberately destroyed simply to wipe out the Jewish connection, and that's exactly what it is, Jimmy. The Islamic groups that have done this now for 30 years, they've been doing this on and off, have admitted that uh, that is what they're doing. They don't want to, you know, any proof that there was a Jewish connection, which is absurd. But I've seen uh, the graveyard of earlier broken stuff that's uh, near the Mount of Olives, and it's so sad. It's a terrible, tragic thing that the world, the U.N., if it wants to scream about something, should be screaming about that. But, of course, it favors Israel, so they won't say anything. Let me change the subject now to the Gaza Strip, which I just mentioned. The public security minister, Erdan, has said that uh, they better be preparing for a pretty large Gaza operation, possibly this summer. What do you know about that? 
Well, Jimmy, it's getting very serious. There's been over 650 fires started by these fiery kites and projectiles. They actually are loading some of these with droplets of bombs full of liquid that also catch fire and drop everywhere. It's set forests on fire. It's set fields on fire. There's uh, 27 burning currently still, and they come up suddenly, and the Israelis have to run. Now, nobody's been killed yet, but that's going to happen if this continues. And, of course, many other things we could talk about, what's been happening, more missiles and more rockets. I agree with that assessment that it's going to take a major operation. I think Prime Minister Netanyahu knows that. I think, Jimmy, it's being planned as part of the larger operation that's going to happen. The Syrians are not stopping to mass along the Golan border. The Israelis won't allow that. The Iranians are doing the same. Uh, the shelling's right next to them. They're just not going to allow it. So I think when something goes in the north, we'll see the Israelis also move in the south, and they will have every reason to do so because the likelihood is that Iran will order Islamic Jihad to once again pummel Israel with the rockets that they've stationed with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. So they'll go after those first, but expect a major operation. I think they are planning for that uh, likelihood. And we'll stay on top of that story with David Dolan. He's the man, longtime journalist in the Middle East, who helps us to understand what's going on in this very key region of the world. David, thank you so much for your report. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Madad, we're going to be talking about the visit by a member of the royal family from Great Britain, Prince Williams, on his way to Israel. That conversation with Winky all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move now into our next half hour. Remember, I ask for 90 minutes, three half-hour segments, where I'll give you the information you need to know about current events around this world. And with our broadcast partners, we keep you updated on what's happening as we look at the prophetic scenario from the ancient Jewish prophets and how they laid out the end times looks like we're right in lockstep with those ancient Jewish prophets. Well, here's a man, he's not a prophet, and in fact, he's not even ancient, but he is a good friend of us, a longtime broadcast partner, Winky Madad, who joins us from Shiloh in the center part of the state of Israel. Now, that is an ancient location, dating back some 3,500 years ago when the 
Jewish people came into the promised land. Winky, I'm so grateful for you joining us, and I hear that a member of the British royal family is on the way to Jerusalem. Can you tell us about Prince William coming to visit the State of Israel during its 70th birthday? Well, we're expecting Prince William. He's scheduled to be visiting, I think, next week. I've lost track of the dates already. By the way, he has a paternal great-grandmother, if I'm not mistaken, who's buried Princess Anne, I think it's Princess Anne, on the Mount of of Olives in her own, uh, I think there's even a little crypt around it. Uh, I haven't been there myself personally, but uh, she had herself willed to be buried in Jerusalem, so actually has a personal family connection to the Holy City. Winky, talk to me about the fact that in the 70-year period or history of the State of Israel, there has never been an official royal visitor come from Great Britain, and Prince William's going to be the first one. Any reason for that? Well, I would guess you'd have to look for the reason of combining the history of Great Britain and the Palestine Mandate that was supposed to, according to the Balfour Declaration, the San Remo Conference, and the League of Nations, become the Jewish national home. And then the British ran into trouble with the local Arabs. And instead of saying, okay, guys, you get Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt already exists. We have the North African countries. That's a problem with France. But uh, you also have Saudi Arabia and a few other countries around the Middle East. But we promised the land of Israel, which everybody knows is the national historic homeland of the Jewish people, is a small fraction of the great size and width and breadth of the rest of the Middle East. They said, well, maybe we'll compromise. So first they chopped off Transjordan and gave it to a Saudi Arabian refugee by the name of Abdullah. And then they began to chip away at Western Palestine, and eventually we ended up only with actually about 25% of the original territory of the mandate. They left because we Jews engaged in a resistance policy. Both the Haganah and the Irgun and the Stern Group, who were resistance groups that used force in various levels, and they were kicked out. So I don't think they're very happy with that history of it. And that's probably the basis of the uh, animosity, I would even say, of the British Foreign Office until today against the State of Israel. Well, and in fact, if I remember correctly, the United Kingdom, the British Empire, in other words, actually recognized the Jewish state in 1948. But before that, they had continually blocked the Jewish people from returning. In fact, they were pretty actively involved in doing that, were they not? Yes, there are some people, including myself, who would say they had an indirect hand in, and I want to be careful in my phrasing, Jimmy, in increasing the number of Jews who were caught up in the Holocaust because they couldn't get out of Europe. Great Britain, as you intimated, closed the gates of the Palestine Mandate, the land of Israel, in 1939, allowing only over the next five years, Jimmy, between you and me, 
1939-1944 was the height of the Holocaust to only 75,000. And so Jews couldn't get out because they had nowhere to go. A lot of people today in Israel, while they appreciate Great Britain as a place of democracy, culture, and a kingdom with princes and princesses, we're not very happy with that period of times. I think the Foreign Office is still under the impression that they have to kowtow to the Arab world more than the Jews in the land of Israel. And Prince William has been caught up in this by the itinerary of his visit. Well, let's talk about that itinerary just for a moment. I understand it's supposed to start in the Old City, and they are referring to it as Occupied Palestinian Territory. Now, that phrase is totally wrong, but that's not a good place to start when you're visiting Israel, is it? Well, I think he has a day and a half of actual visits in Israel, and then according to the press statement I saw from the government press office, the phrase is, the next days, the people in charge will be the British embassy, which means that somehow Prince William moves in his mind, maybe, or at least in the mind of the foreign office, from... Israel into some Netherland, which is called, as you said, the Occupied Palestinian Territories. But if he's going to be in Jerusalem, at the very least, and I say this with a smile, Jimmy, he should be in Israeli-occupied Jerusalem. <laughs> There's no Palestinian-occupied territory that I know of, and as we are thankful to the President of the United States, even the United States has refrained now from using that type of terminology, uh, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Let me ask the big question. Do you think Prince William will actually, on behalf of the kingdom of the great British empire, recognize Jerusalem, as did Donald Trump, as the political capital of the Jewish state of Israel? Uh, a flat-out no, Jimmy. Not that I'd like to even answer you too much in the negative, but princes... Even and even kings or queens do not make political policy of the British Empire or even Great Britain today. That's made by the government, and uh, they're just figureheads. Uh, they have a lot of castles, uh, polo horses, and every once in a while, a baby prince or princess. That's about the best they can do in terms of what we, you and I, Jimmy, would call uh, politics or, or, or diplomacy. It's nice that he's coming. I don't mind it uh, being a first step, an eventual complete turnabout of the British attitude toward Israel. But we're not that overjoyed at the terms and the itinerary and the terminology of his visit. Yeah, it's uh, very important to recognize that the Palestinian Authority is going to do everything they can in order to get the United Kingdom, the British Empire, to denounce Jerusalem as the political capital and declare it as Palestinian, especially the old city, that's not going to go over well at all with Israel, is it? No, not at all. And we suffered this for the 19 years between 48 and 67, when Great Britain was probably the only country to recognize that Jordan had conquered, occupied, territory of the Arab state that was supposed to arise as a result of that 1948 U.N. partition plan, which never came to fruition, and refused to recognize Israel after 67 
as being in place of Jordan. I mean, uh, take the worst-case scenario, okay? As I said, they recognize Jordan's takeover of Western Palestine, or portion of it, that now somehow people call the West Bank, which extends all the way up into the mountains of Judea and Samaria and down on the other side. That's one of the widest banks of a river I've ever seen, Jimmy, about 50 kilometers wide. Uh, and now Israel has done the same thing in 67, worst case, right? We're playing devil's advocate here in, in terminology. But Britain will not recognize what Jordan did in, in 48 in a similar fashion. So obviously there's a bias. Obviously there's a something very wrong with British thinking, even on a logical level. Well, uh, let me talk about history just for a moment because you're a great historian. As I remember, in 1917, it was the it was the British Empire who actually defeated the Ottoman Empire there in the Jezreel Valley under General Allenby, and then Balfour, Lord Balfour, put forth the declaration. These were men who believed that Israel had a right to be in that part of the world. What happened? How did it all fall apart? Well, you're right, Jimmy. Both Lord uh, Balfour and many other members of the British cabinet were steeped in, today I think you'd use the term Christian Zionism to describe that uh, phenomenon of people actually knowing what was written in the Bible and believing in it and and knowing that, that the Jews had to return home and they had a right to be there. But things began to go down from there because... First of all, Jimmy, the military governors and other officers of occupied Palestine by the British were not very favorably inclined to the Jews. They had a very bad, uh, and in some cases even an anti-Semitic attitude toward Jews. Many of them had been colonial officers in India and Egypt and other places where they preferred the non-Jew and the Arab. And with the outbreak of Arab violence in 20 and 21, and then later on in 29, they had a case for themselves to say, hey, the local population is not happy, let's end all this. Parliament refused to do that over the years. Churchill actually was a very strong supporter within the British framework. And at the end, we had to fight for our freedom. And it was granted to us by our own actions against both the British and the Arab armies that invaded us. In fact, I'm bringing it up now to 47-48. Well, I wanted to have this opportunity, Winky, to talk with you, give a foundation for understanding how significant this visit is, since he is, I'm talking about Prince William, the very first member of the royal family officially to come to Israel. Be a very interesting visit, I am sure. And thank you for your insight and uh, the historic information. I always come to you, Winky, and I want to know about history. You're an expert not only in the media, and but in history as well. Appreciate this conversation, Winky. We'll have another one real soon. Jimmy, thank you for the opportunity to be on your program, talk to the listeners, and we wish you well here from Shiloh. And we'll talk after the visit. We'll see what happened. I love Winky Madad. Just a great guy. And in fact, a great historian as well. Bringing us information about the British Empire and the royal family visit by Prince William into Israel on its 70th birthday. We'll rehearse what happened maybe in next week's program. Right now, we're going to stay In that part of the world that we had a focus on, Great Britain and the European Union, how be it, Great Britain is 
Not long for a member state in the European Union. We'll talk about that with our good buddy John Rood, who is actually in Boston, Massachusetts today at a conference. And we got him. He stepped to the side trying to get a quiet place so he could talk with us. John, I've got so many things to ask you. Let me get underway right away. The NATO chief has been pleading for unity in the European Union, but he is now confronted by most of the ministers of defense, these ministers of defense, similar to our secretary of defense. They are warning that Russia is preparing for war. What do you know about this? Uh, NATO is experiencing a great deal of stresses and tensions these days, certainly because of Europe and the United States. We are facing the Iran deal, trade war, climate change, etc. The Secretary General, uh, Jens Stoltenberg of NATO, uh, he's preparing getting the word out, the agenda out, particularly before NATO has its uh, mid-July summit in Brussels. The headquarters are in Brussels. In fact, we would also have NATO people as well as ambassadors uh, attend our church in Brussels when I pastored there. 29 member nations. One of the reasons why they're stressing right now these particular items is that there is a funding crisis, and only five of the 29 member nations in NATO actually spend the 2% minimum GDP on defense. That's more or less a requirement. So ministers of defense have actually come out with a statement saying Russia is preparing for war. A wording I found from a United Kingdom Armed Forces minister, it's a myth that Russia would not use hard power in the future. So they have to beef up the finance into these sections. They're trying to bring a response from the member nations to for Europe to take their responsibility. They're going to pump up the defense spending, particularly cyber defense, warships, nuclear submarines, and F-35 lightning jets. Well, John, will this affect Macron's president of France's desire to pull 10 nations together and form a European army? That's interesting. The European army is always a military motive of the European Union. They want to have a separate military. They also don't want to take the expense. But the EU military committee and NATO itself has always been at odds with each other. This is more a preparation for the summit to come to get each of the countries to ante up. But probably the most startling challenge right now to to NATO is the position of Turkey, because Turkey is in NATO and does not necessarily act as a NATO member. This is really a major stress. But in terms of the money and the financing, this is going to be a focus on the United States and Europe to help iron out these problems. Eventually, Europe, I believe, will have its own army, and these are precursors to that eventuality. That is absolutely true. I agree with you 100% there, because to revive the old Roman Empire, they must have a military operation. And I do believe that the infrastructure for that revived Roman Empire will be the European Union. Thus, they need their own military operation. 
The Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, made a Middle East visit. She met with King Abdullah there in Jordan, and she said that she was very much concerned and talked to the king about Islam being a part of any European Union type of situation. But, of course, she also talked about the Iranian aggressiveness and wanted to make sure that was held somewhat in bay. Chancellor Merkel, yes, is visiting Jordan and called out the Iranian aggression. And I see the timing of this to be particular importance, because remember, with the United States withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, part of it was not just the nuclear deal, but it was all of the other issues about Iranian presence in Syria, Iranian missiles, and so forth. So it appears to me that uh, Angela Merkel is actually taking the tour in the Middle East, and it happens to be at the same time, it's simultaneous, as President Trump sending his Middle East peace envoy. But Chancellor Merkel is actually echoing the United States' concerns, being an extension of these concerns, so to speak, and actually brought it out to King Abdullah saying that, you need to be concerned about Jordan's borders. So she's actually taking the United States initiative and concerns, echoing them, but placing it in the context of Jordan itself to begin a shifting. So this appears to be a very um, decisive political move. Yes, indeed. What the European Union does in our world today is very key to understanding the whole geopolitical situation across the world, but of course, Bible prophecy as well. Here again, we talk about political activities and go to Bible prophecy. John, have a great time at the conference there in Boston. We'll talk again next week. Thank you so much, my good buddy. Thank you. Glad we can monitor these things. Very important. Very important conversation from John Rood as he gives us a European Union update as we look at Bible prophecy, European Union, a key location, infrastructure, I do believe, for the revived Roman Empire. Well, we're going to continue in this half hour, bringing to these microphones at the broadcast table in a moment, Dr. Peter Fry. He's actually the executive director of the task force on national and homeland security. He's the author of a book entitled Blackout War and an expert on the EMP, the Electric Magnetic Pulse. We'll get into some of that with Dr. Pry. But I was reading an article that Dr. Pry recently wrote, thought it would be a very important conversation for us to have here on Prophecy Today as we go across the nation on some 1,500 radio stations, ultimately getting the message out to the people who need to understand the end-time scenario that's found in the Bible. Dr. Fry, you have this article which basically is talking about the Poseidon Project, which is Russia's 100-megaton monster bomb. Talk to us about it. How did you get the information? How dangerous is it? Sure. On March 1st of this year, Vladimir Putin, the dictator of Russia, in a televised broadcast that really went around the world, described a series of nuclear superweapons that Russia is developing 
whereas in some cases there's already built. These included the Satan II heavy ICBM, you know, which is the most powerful intercontinental ballistic missile ever made and that can hurl many times more warheads than the United States. Another one was a nuclear-powered cruise missile that can defeat, they allege, U.S. air defenses and any kind of space-based defenses the United States might try to deploy in the future and can maneuver around and attack us from unexpected directions. And, and also a doomsday machine, a nuclear doomsday machine that is called Poseidon. And it is basically a unmanned submarine, a, or, or torpedo, if you will, that is designed to carry a 100-megaton bomb. And the weapon would be detonated underwater off the U.S. coasts, like off the eastern coast of the United States, and raise tsunamis, uh, tidal waves, enormous tidal waves that are radioactive and cover the U.S. coastal areas with radioactivity, rendering them an uninhabitable wasteland. And it's, the implication is also that this is an artificially intelligent nuclear weapon. It's the first time a, uh, a nuclear weapon, and 100 megatons is the most powerful nuclear weapon that has ever been built by any nation. It's many times more powerful than the most powerful nuclear weapon that the United States ever built. And so you're marrying that with an artificially intelligent robot, basically, to execute this doomsday operation. Uh, it hasn't been deployed yet. They're, according to Russia, Russian press, it'll be deployed sometime in between next year and the year 2027. But they're experimenting with it. And it's a real threat. The uh, nuclear posture review that was just published earlier this year uh, acknowledges the existence of, of this doomsday machine called Poseidon. Talk to me about uh, the equivalent power that is in this 100 megaton bomb. I understand it's equivalent to about 100 million tons of TNT. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. It's uh, 10,000 times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. It's about uh, 1,000 times more powerful than a standard U.S. hydrogen bomb, which is about 100 kilotons. The most powerful nuclear weapon the United States ever built was 25 megatons, you know, which is only one quarter as powerful as this weapon. And we don't have the 25 megaton warhead that was dismantled back in the 1970s. You know, our warheads are mostly, uh, almost all of them are under one megaton. And it might actually be more than 100 megatons in its power. What they appear to have done is resurrected an old Cold War weapon called the Tsar Bomb, King of Bombs. And it was, uh, it was designed to be tested at 100 to 150 megatons yield. So it could be as high as 150 megatons. And as I understand it, if they're testing this monster bomb that Russia has or hopes to have in operation very quickly now, that you couldn't do it in the air in an aircraft because it would destroy the aircraft, destroy the pilot, be dangerous, so that uh, the actual event that you need to do is be able to set it off underwater, and thus that megaton bomb would cause a tsunami wiping out most of the east coast of the United States. Well, that's its advertised purpose. And, and they don't have to test the bomb because it was already tested back in 1961 successfully. And it, indeed, they tested it only to half strength to 60 megatons because uh, they were afraid to test it in full strength, even though it was tested in Novaya Zemlya, which is an island in the far Arctic Circle. They were afraid that the, a bomb so powerful, if they tested it to full yield, that radioactive fallout would end up contaminating Russia. And even at half strength when it was tested, I mean, it shattered windows and doors in, like, Finland and Sweden, you know, hundreds of kilometers away from the point of the bomb detonation. And although it was airburst 
3,000 or 4,000 feet in the air, it caused a seismic shock, you know, uh, that circled the Earth three times. And under the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty, they can't test these, at least the United States and Russia can't test nuclear weapons in the atmosphere anymore. But they don't have to. They already tested the thing, and you don't really have to test nuclear weapons anyway. Uh, India and Pakistan, Israel, South Africa, they all built nuclear weapons without testing them that are successful. And so um, with their computer modeling and all the rest, they know they can get the bomb right. What they are testing is the submarine, the drone called Poseidon. The warhead is called Tsar, and the drone is called uh, Poseidon. And it's the drone that they're experimenting with. And probably the hard part of that is, you know, how well does the artificial intelligence work in that uh, in that drone? Because the thing is, it's nuclear-powered, and it's designed to travel over 100 kilometers per hour underwater and dive to a depth of a kilometer. It doesn't just rely on speed and stealth for survival, because, you know, Poseidon will have to cross the Atlantic Ocean and get past U.S. anti-submarine warfare assets. And so its artificial intelligence is supposed to be able to operate the way a human captain would so that it can evade uh, our anti-submarine warfare forces. In subsequent articles that I'm writing on this, I'm skeptical about whether the real purpose of Poseidon is to raise nuclear tsunamis. It's certainly possible to make a nuclear tsunami, as I point out in my article. Well, we're looking forward to having a conversation with you to update us on what you think the purpose of the establishment of the monster Russian bomb might be. And we will post your article on our website, prophecytoday.com, so you can read about it in light of the conversation I've had with Dr. Peter Pry. Dr. Pry, thank you so very much for alerting us to this alarming possibility with the Russians attacking the United States in some way, shape, or form. We'll stay in touch with you, keep us abreast of what's happening, so we can bring the information to our listeners. Thank you so much, my good friend. We appreciate the conversation time. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to our conversation continuing in the future. What an important conversation with Peter about the possibility of a monster bomb from Russia. We're going to have to take a break, and when I come back, I'll be talking with David James. We'll be talking about the Noahide vow. You need to keep the dial where it is here at prophecytoday.com. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to the last half hour. Again, every single time we are on the air, I ask you for a hour and a half, 90 minutes, so I can bring my broadcast partners to this table, and we will be able to give you information as you eavesdrop on our conversation, understanding current events in light of biblical prophecy. We're going to conclude this broadcast the same way. In just a moment, David James will join us at the broadcast table. We're going to be talking about the Noahide principles that are found in the Bible, but actually Orthodox Judaism uses it to get Christians to deny Jesus Christ and become connected to Israel. You don't want to miss that conversation. Keep the dial right where it is. Please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go on the left-hand column, scroll down, and you'll find the poll question, which is the one I want you to answer this week. Here's the question. Do nations created by God, Genesis chapter 10, 
and their political leaders who are making political decisions on a daily basis set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled as foretold in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17, which reveals that God puts in the hearts of these political leaders to fulfill his will for the end times. And that's the bold question. Please go to my website and answer it at prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. We have a weekly conversation. Now, last week, Jim Jr. handled the conversation, but we have another focus that we're going to take this week. Four Texans have vowed to uphold the Noahide laws, and they did that on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. David, this week, this article was posted on the Breaking Israel News website about these two couples from Texas who recently went up onto the Temple Mount, as I said, there in Jerusalem, and vowed to uphold certain rabbinical laws while at the same time disavowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's dangerous. Yeah, it's not only dangerous, it's quite disturbing, and you wonder how how this might happen and why it might happen, and of course we'll get into that later. Let me just share with our listeners a few things from that article. The lead paragraph says this, Four non-Jewish Americans made a special stop on their tour of Jerusalem, ascending to the Temple Mount, and in front of a Bet Din, which is Hebrew for rabbinic court, took an oath to obey the seven Noahide laws incumbent on all of mankind. And then they named the, the four people, the two couples that went up on the Temple Mount, with a rabbi, and they also met with another rabbi who heard them profess allegiance to the Noahide laws, which we'll talk about in a moment and quizzed them, and what they said was, in the article, as they were being interviewed by Breaking Israel News, one of the men said, we don't define ourselves as Christian and no longer believe in Jesus. We are Gertoshav, which is a Hebrew term that we'll talk about a little bit later, and are connected to Israel. So apparently these people had previously identified as Christians, but now they have apparently turned their back on the Lord. Well, that is a very serious decision that these two couples have made. David, let's uh, first talk about the Noahide laws. Now, I want you to explain what they are and why are they significant in the minds of observant Jews? Well, the Noahide laws come from the Noahic covenant in general, which is found in Genesis chapter 9, but they've actually been built upon by rabbinic tradition, and these seven laws are actually listed in the Talmud, and not even all of them are actually come directly from the Noahic Covenant, but come from rather an interpretation, a rabbinic interpretation of the Noahic Covenant. So the seven laws that are said to be required of all of mankind, because as we know, and this is biblical, that the Noahic covenant is an eternal covenant, and by God's grace, we are still under that covenant. Whenever we see the rainbow, we know that he's not going to destroy the world by flood again, but it's also a reminder that uh, he has the capacity and ability to destroy the world, and that will happen in the future uh, by fire, not by water. But the seven laws are this. Do not deny God. Do not blaspheme God. 
do not murder, do not engage in sexual immorality, do not steal, do not eat of a live animal, and that comes from the idea that we're not supposed to eat the blood of an animal, and so that is their interpretation. And the seventh is to establish courts or a legal system to ensure law and obedience. And so these are seen by Jews as very important as it applies to Gentiles who choose not to become Jews, but it also allows Gentiles to be uh, righteous in the eyes of God, according to rabbinic tradition. According to rabbinic tradition is the key phrase there, David. But isn't it true that both President Ronald Reagan and the United States Congress officially recognize the seven Noahide laws? Yes, and it's very interesting. You know, we talk about America being founded upon a Judeo-Christian ethic, and in my research for our discussion today, I, I was actually rather surprised that the President and Congress were actually aware of these Noahide laws and that this was part of rabbinic tradition concerning Gentiles. And in fact, what we find is, in 1987, President Ronald Reagan signed a proclamation speaking of the historical tradition of ethical values and principles, which had been the bedrock of society from the dawn of civilization when they were known as the seven Noahide laws transmitted through God to Moses on Mount Sinai. So that comes from President Reagan. And then in 1991, Congress stated in the preamble to uh, a 1991 bill that established Education Day, that was done in honor of the birthday of Menachem ben Mendel Schneerson, who is actually the leader of the Chabad movement, which is a branch of the ultra-Orthodox Jews. So it's very interesting that these have been recognized even by our own government at the highest levels. Wow, what an interesting history you're revealing to us. Well, David, so then these two couples are not Jewish, but do see themselves as somehow connected to Israel and identify themselves with the Hebrew term that you mentioned, Ger Toshav. That's right, and actually that Hebrew word translates to resident alien, and it goes back to several times in the Old Testament talking about uh, Gentiles who actually connect to the nation of Israel, but they are not actually proselytes. So a Gentile who proselytizes, he is considered by the Jewish people and the rabbis as actually being Jewish and no longer a Gentile. But it's also said in Leviticus 25.47, for example, if a resident alien, and that's the term Ger Toshav, says the resident alien among you has prospered, and your kinsman, being in straits, come under his authority and gives himself over to the resident alien among you or to an offshoot of an alien's family. So the idea is this, that a Gentile could connect himself to the nation of Israel by observing the Noahide laws. In other words, since these are given to all of mankind, they are seen as being compatible, and the minimum requirements for a, a Gentile to be considered righteous. And in fact, this classification uh, was actually fairly recently recognized by the chief rabbinate of Israel in 2014, because they really hadn't passed, in modern times, hadn't really discussed this and made this formal declaration. So this, these two couples, and in fact, the year before, there were other Texans who had done the same thing. So this allows for Gentiles to connect 
to the nation of Israel and Judaism in general without becoming Jews. So then David, in addition to now being considered resident aliens in the eyes of the rabbinic community, and they do this, of course, by keeping the Noahide laws, they are also considered righteous Gentiles. Take a moment and explain for those listening the concept of righteous Gentiles in Judaism. Well, there are actually two concepts that are considered in this. One is the idea of being righteous among the nations, and that is a special title used by the state of Israel to describe non-Jews who risked their lives during the Holocaust to save Jews from extermination by the Nazis. But the term originates with the concept of righteous Gentiles, which is a term that is used in rabbinic Judaism to refer to non-Jews, and it is generally understood by the rabbis that any non-Jew who lives according to those laws, the Noahide laws, is regarded as one of the righteous among the Gentiles, and therefore they have a share in the world to come which means that there is a possibility of actually salvation for Gentiles apart from becoming a Jew if you simply follow and adhere to those seven laws that the rabbis have defined as being passed down from the Noahic Covenant through Moses to all of mankind. All right. Now, since works of righteousness is considered the way to gain eternal life in Judaism— By joining to Israel and being righteous Gentiles, do these two couples then see that this is the way of salvation for them? Well, I can't say specifically because I have not read their specific statements, but it would seem that for someone to take the most radical step of disavowing the Lord Jesus Christ and going to the Temple Mount and standing before a rabbinical court, which is made up of these two rabbis that they made these statements to, that they must necessarily see this as a way of salvation, and they see themselves connecting to the nation of Israel, who, of course, are God's chosen people. But to see this as a means of salvation apart from Jesus Christ, is is very disturbing, and it's very difficult to understand why anybody would come to that conclusion. But I would say this, I've recently been in an extended discussion on Facebook, in a dispensational forum on Facebook, with someone who used to be a dispensationalist and is now part of the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I know that's a little bit different topic, but the point is this, there are people who have been in evangelicalism who are moving more and more toward Judaism, and this is a very dangerous step, and Paul actually warned against this, and I think that's also what the writer of Hebrews warned against, going back to Judaism as opposed to being related to Christ. All right, David, now let's bring this down to the biblical bottom line, as we always do in our conversations. According to the Bible, are the rabbis right? Are the keepers of the Noahide laws right? Are these righteous Gentiles right? That they believe salvation is possible apart from the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, I would say absolutely not, and I think the place to go to actually make this very clear is the book of Romans. Paul makes a very extended argument. He argues like a lawyer, a teacher of the law, of which he was. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he knew how to argue and present a case according to the Word of God. And this is what he writes in Romans chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's verse 18. Then he goes on into, in chapter 2, he said, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, meaning that everyone is guilty before God because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then through his extended argument that goes clear into chapter 10, we find that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's chapter 10, verse 12. And he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he talks about people must hear, understand, and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. They must hear, understand, and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, praise the Lord, that is absolute truth from the book of Romans. David, great research, a great issue that we needed to discuss, I do believe. And I hope people, if they did not hear the whole conversation, well, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, and there you'll be able to find my conversation with David James. And do me a favor, tell a friend. They need to hear this as well. Thank you so much, David. Join you next week when we'll have another issue that we'll discuss. Thanks, Jimmy. I always enjoy talking with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to put everything together our broadcast partners had to say, and we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. 
I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Our broadcast partners came to my broadcast table with very important reports from different regions of the world and on a number of key issues. These conversations are so important for you to be able to hear and understand what current events are unfolding in our world and how in the prophetic scenario found in God's Word, these current events help us to determine the time in which we are living. I have six broadcast partners. They're all excellent. They're all stationed someplace across the world, and we had them with us today. Now, if you had to miss any of the conversations, may I suggest you go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Prophecy Today Radio Network. That's a network that you can go to any time, any day, any hour of that day and hear these broadcast partners in the conversations we had on a number of very key subjects. And I want you to do me a favor. Tell a friend about these interviews so that they can listen to this information and better understand Bible prophecy. This is very important for us to be ready for the next event, the rapture of the church. Well, we're going to look at this week's news because it helps us to see how the prophetic perspective of the news is helping us to recognize our time in history and the urgency of the moment. I went to Ken Timmerman. He was there in southern France, and we talked about North Korea, who is saying that they're going to sell nuclear technology to Iran. Actually, this has been going on for 20 years as Ken brought to our attention that information. Ken has been on top of this story for so many years. He's very knowledgeable of how this is developing. And may I look at the prophetic perspective with you? Remember George W. Bush talked about the axis of evil. That was Iran, Syria, and North Korea. These three nations have been working in preparation to be able to destroy the Jewish state of Israel, and they are working still together today to be able to accomplish that goal. Remember, there will be nations that will rise up against the Jewish nation of Israel, according to Psalm 83 and verse 4, and their total purpose will be to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, that her name be forgotten forever." In fact, that's almost a quote from some of the Islamic political leaders, for example, Hamadinejad, back when he was president of Iran. David Dolan, always there to give us our Middle East news update, longtime journalist in the state of Israel, and we focused on the worst-kept secret in military preparedness that Israel has a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Actually, David brought to our attention, it was a former prime minister, Ehud Omar, 
who mentioned at a conference he was addressing in Germany that Israel had at least 200 nuclear weapons in their arsenal. However, the Israeli government has never made that definite of a statement. You know, I have to tell you the truth. If Israel has nuclear weapons, it may well be a deterrent today from an attack by their enemies. But I read the last chapter, and God will protect the Jewish people. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 18, through chapter 39, verse 6, talks about when this alignment of nations led by Russia attacks the Jewish state of Israel with the Islamic nations in tow, and they endeavor to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, God will intercede and protect his chosen people. That's an absolute because it is the word of God. Winky Madad talked about a feature that we like to keep everybody abreast of, and that's the relationship between the European Union and Israel. Prince William of the British Empire is going to make a visit to Israel, and this will be the first time a British royal family member has come into Israel, Prince William arriving to celebrate the 70th birthday of the Jewish state of Israel. Now, I understand that the British Empire is withdrawing from the European Union, but ultimately, I believe they will be a part of the revived Roman Empire. That's the book of Daniel, chapter 7, the Roman Empire with ten horns. That would be the revived Roman Empire led by Antichrist. That's chapter 7 and verse 8 of Daniel, the little horn first mention of the Antichrist in the Word of God. We see all of this happening in light of setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union for us, talking about NATO and the European Union ministers of defense warning that Russia is preparing for war. You know, there are going to be two major world powers in the time of the Tribulation. It will be the European Union, and that's the revived Roman Empire, and Russia and their coalition of Islamic nations, that's when they gather to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. We can see that coming better into focus with the report from John Rood. Peter Fry is the expert on the EMP, Electric Magnetic Pulse, and in his report, he was talking with us about the Russian monster bomb, which would be a super bomb more powerful than any bomb in all the world. Remember, Russia is a player that's mentioned in Bible prophecy. It's Magog, which you find the name for Russia in biblical times. There in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2. And Russia quickly putting that alignment of nations together to attack the Jewish state of Israel. David James and I have a weekly conversation, and David today will focus with me on the issue of Christians denouncing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and taking the Noahide vow, the covenant with Noah that God made some 4,500 years ago. They went up onto the Temple Mount, denounced Jesus Christ, accepted the vows of the Noahide covenant, and now believe they are connected to the Jewish state of Israel. You need to listen to what David has to say. Is it biblical, and is it correct, and is it a way to salvation? I can give the answer to that. It is not a way to salvation. Well, each of these events that we talked about with our broadcast partners has to indicate 
that the stage is indeed being set for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, if you look at that stage, the next event is the rapture of the church. My dear friend, that rapture could happen at any moment. Having made that statement, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 